This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, and with me here in our studio in Edmond, Oklahoma, is our somewhat diminished panel. We've got Andrew Miller. Hello. Rafaro Manyepa. Hello. And Josue Michel. Hello there. So the team is a little smaller than usual this week, but there's plenty of news still to cover. And our first story is about Russia's war against Ukraine, which continues to rage on. We're now just past the one-year mark of this war. And this week, the Russians have suffered some some more setbacks. To tell us about this, we'll go to Rafaro Manyepa. Yes, it certainly seems as though it's been a week of setbacks for Russia. Uh, at the very start of the week on Monday, there was the story about the destruction of a Russian plane in Belarus. It was uh, an A-50 military surveillance aircraft that was downed in a drone strike uh, carried out by a Belarusian anti-government organization. And, and this organization objects to the increasing bond between Belarus and Russia. And this attack shows that you know the support for <laughs> Russia from Belarus isn't as clear-cut as one might think, there are forces in the country um, that are against it. So that was the that was the first thing that sent some waves through the media. Next on Wednesday was the story of a Russian defeat at uh, in a town called Wuledar. After three weeks of battle here between Ukraine and Russia, Ukraine announced on Wednesday that they successfully repelled a Russian capture of the town of Wuledar. It happened when a Ukrainian ambush party created a kill zone and waited for Russian forces to enter. And they managed to destroy about 130 Russian tanks and armored personnel carriers, they say. So that's that's a loss that they've been talking about. And it's it's been all over the news. And then the next day on Thursday... Uh, Vladimir Putin, Russia's president, made an announcement on a terrorist attack that happened near Russia's border with Ukraine. And there's videos circulating online about an armed group that went across the border into Russia to fight the Kremlin regime, they said. And uh, Putin accused them of firing on civilians and two people died and an 11-year-old were killed. And Ukraine came out and said that the attack is actually just a sign of internal strife inside Russia. But all of these stories here came out, and they're they're pretty bad for Russia, and, and they seem to be some setbacks. Uh, and that's how they were reported on by the media, saying that it's been a bad week for Russia. Yeah, 130 tanks and APCs, that, that seems you know very high for one week. And uh, this also comes just as the Russians cross a very grim milestone of suffering 150,000 dead soldiers. Mm. That was uh, just this morning, apparently, that they hit that number. So mm. far more Russian soldiers have now died in this war, which was supposed to just last a few days, than have died in all the conflicts that Russia has fought in since World War II combined. Mm. So these are, uh, you know, just catastrophic losses for the Russians. And everything that you mentioned, of course, adds to all of this. It all adds up to just a lot of evidence that there were some some fairly grave miscalculations on on the part of the Russians going into the war. But um, is this news from this week, is it as bad as as it seems for the Russians? Well, <laughs> that that's the that's the very question right there. And you look at the 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 story about Belarus, for example. You know, it, it, there were several stories about this downed Russian plane, but it's also important to remember it, it was just one plane that did get downed. That's <laughs> among so many that Russia has yeah. that that are able to do that. Also, it does signify the growing cooperation between Russia and Belarus. Even though there are forces inside Belarus that are against this, like it's it's largely indicative of the fact that Russia is increasingly using Belarus as a staging point for its war against the Ukraine. And how long is it before Belarus actually joins up and and engages in the war with Russia? Second, yeah, great point there. Great point. I think Belarus, in many ways now, is part of Russia. 
Like it's, right. it's so deeply integrated into the Russian sphere. Lukashenko is so deeply beholden to Putin that uh, in some ways it's barely even a separate country anymore. Right, exactly. Um, secondly, uh, there's the point about the, the attack on the town of Wuladar. And yes, it, it, Russia did suffer a lot of losses, but it's also significant to point that we heard nothing about Ukraine's losses in actually keeping this town. Right. If if they hadn't had uh, if they'd had minimal losses, I'm pretty sure they would have said that, you know, to really right. emphasize the fact that this was a total defeat for Russia. But we haven't heard a word about what Ukraine lost in order to keep this town. And that's in keeping with the trend of this war. We hear a lot about how Russia's losing, how, how bad a time it's having and then very little about what Ukraine is suffering. Yeah, beware the sound of one hand clapping. <laughs> a lot of times we're only right. hearing one half of the story, and, exactly. and you do have to keep in mind what you're not hearing. Right. And then third, with the story of the terrorist attack, and it, this is probably the most interesting one. Uh, first of all, I think it's pretty hypocritical of Vladimir Putin to deride this terrorist attack, considering just how awful... Russian forces have been in Ukraine and the crimes that they've committed and the attacks against civilians. But then also thinking about how this attack can be used as justification of even worse Russian crimes. And I think that's the overall uh, theme to take away from all of these stories is that they're great justifications for setting up a Russian escalation in the war against Ukraine. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And and with that attack inside of Russia, there's even a lot of speculation that it was a false flag, mm -hmm. that the Russians themselves staged that to right. appear like a Ukrainian atta attack so that they would have that justification to escalate. I think it's too soon to say for sure um, who the perpetrators were. But, but I think you're exactly right that despite a first year that was full of setbacks and far more arduous and difficult for Putin's Russia than anyone expected, Despite all that, the Russians still have massive amounts of manpower and firepower. And um, what do you think that we should expect specifically going forward? Well, for months, we've been saying this at the trumpet, that despite most of the media talking about Russia losing the war, saying uh, that Ukraine is, is on the verge of victory, you know, people are still underestimating just how much Putin wants Ukraine and, and what he's willing to do in order to achieve uh, some semblance of victory, if not total victory. And that's in lockstep with what the Bible says. There's a specific Bible prophecy that we've referenced many times in Ezekiel 38 about the prophesied prince of Rosh. And Mr. Flurry has explained that this prophecy, which speaks about a dangerous leader who will forcefully restore Russia's former power, refers to Vladimir Putin. And it directly applies to what is happening in Ukraine and in Belarus and in all former areas of Russian influence. And that's why we watch the Ukraine war as we do. And that's why we look at this trend of increasing Russian aggression in order to get to that point. And that's what the reports show. That's what these stories indicate is going to happen. And I highly suggest that you request a copy of The Prophesied Prince of Russia, that booklet by Mr. Gerald Flurry, to understand better just how the Bible predicts Russia's ultimate trajectory. That booklet by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry once again is called The Prophesied Prince of Russia. The booklet includes a lot of information showing that this war is not about Russia just righting some wrongs in Ukraine. You know, the war, as, as Rafaro just said there, it's, it's actually just one component of Putin's grand strategy to conquer all the territories around Russia's vast periphery. Putin's Russia wants all of it, and Ukraine is just the latest target. And clearly, if he takes Ukraine, we can be sure that he'll soon be targeting other nations. Um, and there's a great deal of information in there uh, about other topics as well, other details. So please check out our show notes for today's program to order your free copy of The Prophesied Prince of Russia. Well, thanks very much for that, Mr. Manyepa. For the next story, we'll take a look at one of Russia's main allies, China which has just put forward a plan to end the war. China, you know, in reality has zero credibility on this front since it has not even been able to condemn the illegal invasion of Ukraine. But China still published a 12-point plan. 
And the reaction in at least one European capital is exposing some dangerous trends in Europe. For this, we'll go to Andrew Miller. Yeah, that's right. That European capital is Budapest, Hungary. On Monday, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban uh, spoke before the National Parliament of Hungary, uh, warning that the whole of Europe is slipping into war step by step. He said, we need a ceasefire and the start of peace talks. Hungary calls for peace in all international forums. I see that most states support peace and Hungary cannot isolate itself from the world. Therefore, we consider China's peace plan important and we support it. Now, that's the, that makes Hungary the first and only EU nation to support this peace plan. The, the rest of the European Union has rejected it, as has uh, Ukraine. But this highlights an important step uh, <laughs> and an important trend in Europe, because not only is Viktor Orban the leader of one of the EU's 27 nations, as a, um, as a nationalist, populist politician, uh, he's very popular amongst uh, nationalist, populist parties throughout Europe. Some even consider him kind of like a de facto leader to uh, some of these nationalist movements throughout Germany and other European nations. So he's speaking for Hungary, but he's also speaking for uh, a growing movement in many European nations uh, that are looking to um, appease Russia. Uh, and find a um, and find an end for this war in Ukraine. Now, when you look at this peace plan China's put forward, it's a it's a twelve point peace plan that basically uh, calls for an immediate ceasefire, opposes the use of sanctions and nuclear weapons, and calls on all parties to stop fanning the flames of the war. On the surface, it looks like it's trying to make Ukraine kind of like this neutral zone that's not aligned with NATO or aligned with Russia. But it does not call for Russia to relinquish any of the territory it's gained so far. And as a matter of fact, the Russian Duma has annexed, officially annexed, most of the territory Putin has conquered so far. So the Russians don't look at that t- most of that territory as occupied territory. They look at the territory they've conquered as Russia. Right. And the territory they haven't conquered is as Ukraine. So Russia said it would consider China's peace plan. Uh, now, they may just be saying that for publicity's sake, but they, they wouldn't have said that if the peace plan had... Uh, called for them to relinquish what they've already conquered. Uh, So by putting forward this peace plan, um, China has basically told the world that they're fine with Russia keeping the land they've conquered. And by supporting it, uh, Hungary has basically told the world that uh, we're fine with Russia keeping what it's already conquered if we can come to, um, if we can come sort of some sort of arrangement to end the war, and that's a that's a big development in Europe. Now, like I said, Hungary is the only European nations that supported this. So there's really there's really no risk that something like this is going to be uh, adopted in the the short term. But uh, what if the Ukraine war grinds on for another year, or two years, or three years, or four years, or five years? Uh, and as these uh, other <laughs> nationalist, populist parties that support Orbán gain uh, gain support in Europe, I mean there is. That, that is definitely a realistic chance that you could see um, in the future if if Putin's unable to conquer the whole of the country, uh, some sort of peace plan like this that would divide the nation uh, in half. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, you know, as you said, this is largely a kind of a Neville Chamberlain kind of appeasement plan that China has hatched here, pretending that an aggressor like Putin's Russia will be satisfied by getting a bit of new land. Um, When history actually screams to us that the only thing an act like this does is embolden that aggressor and prompt it to further conquests and further acts of aggression. But yet here we see Hungary, an EU member, um, willing to consider this plan because maybe the Hungarian leadership thinks that they'll build better relations with Russia. And as you said, it's not just Hungary, but uh, Orban kind of speaks for for quite a few of more right-leaning uh, factions in Europe. So do you think that this could sort of be the first sign of a coming EU-Russia deal? 
Yes, I, I definitely I do. Uh, <laughs> I definitely do think that. So that's something that we've um, we've talked about at the Trumpet for a long time. As a matter of fact, one of the articles we can put in the show notes. Uh, it's by Richard Palmer. Is entitled the. Uh, the Russian alliance you should be concerned about. It's about Russia and Germany. And it goes through a lot of the history of Russia and Germany forming deals before um, before they uh, <laughs> commit acts of aggression against other nations. Uh, there's also a Bible prophecy in Ezekiel 27, uh, verses 1 through 13. The, the, po- the prophecy is about... Um, the king of Tyrus, which is a prophetic name for the European Union. But in verse 13, addressing this king of Tyrus, it says, Javan, Tubal, and Meshach were your merchants. They traded the persons of men and vessels and brass in their markets. Uh, and so this is actually trading the persons of men. This is actually talking about like slave trading between Tyre, the European Union, Javan, which is uh, the biblical name for Greece, and Tubal and Meshach, which are biblical names for Russia. And so you're, you're looking at this prophecy about the, a revived Holy Roman Empire and, and Russia actually trading human lives, uh, showing that there, there will definitely be some sort of a deal uh, between them. Bible prophecy indicates that both powers will have other military goals um, that they will be pursuing before they uh, inevitably clash with each other. So in the in the short term, the European Union and Russia need to come to some sort of agreement that allows them to pursue those goals. Uh, you mentioned earlier that Belarus, for all practical purposes, is part of Russia um, then if you look at a map, Bulgaria, Romania, Hungary, Poland, and the Baltic states are officially EU member states, uh, and I believe are all of part of NATO as well, uh, which leaves Moldova and Ukraine as the only two non-aligned nations um, in between the European Union and Russia. The rest of the nations and along that border have already picked a side. Uh, now, now Putin's doing his <laughs> his best to make sure that by fair or foul he conquers Ukraine and incorporates it into his Russian Empire, and he he may be successful uh, with that. I, I think it's pretty safe to say he definitely won't surrender the territory he's already gotten. Uh, it, it's possible if the the European Union really gets its act together and maybe gets China to support it that eventually. Um, <laughs> They could come up with some sort of agreement that actually divides Ukraine uh, down the middle, probably with Putin getting more than he uh, than he already has. Um, we'll we'll have to see how that plays out. But these comments by Viktor Orban is kind of the first sign of this movement within Europe. The viewers, like I said, we need to come to an agreement with. <laughs> With Putin, and whether that gives him all of Ukraine or only half of it, we'll see. But we need to come with an agreement with Putin that officially divines the full length of the border between Russia and the European Union. Yeah, so some some very sobering developments are on the horizon. We know that from those prophecies that you just mentioned there. And as you said, Russo-European cooperation, and more specifically, Russo-German cooperation factors heavily into all of that. Um, and that, uh, that article, once again, by Mr. Richard Palmer is called The Russian Alliance You Really Have to Worry About. It takes a close look at the dark history of Russo-German collaboration. And we will include a link to that in our show notes for today episode. Well, thanks very much for bringing us up to speed on that, Andrew. Well, it was just about a month ago now that a 7.8 magnitude earthquake devastated southeast Turkey, and the ramifications of that continue to ripple through the region and even into Western Europe. To tell us the latest on this, we'll go to Josue Michels. Yes, that was in 2015-2016, we had a Syrian civil war that really rose great tensions in the Middle East and caused an unprecedented refugee crisis that impacted Europe in an unprecedented way. But the crisis is now reviving. Even in 2022, we saw that already happening with the Afghanistan crisis where the United States has left the region and that has caused refugees flows again. And now we had the earthquakes and that causes even a few more. And the problem really is here that these people are risking their lives to cross the Mediterranean and they are drowning by the thousands. But Europe 
the response earlier was to take them in. Now they want to build fences. And in a sense, you can understand that because it's causing a lot of problems within their own country. For example, there are Germans that are attacking the refugee centers. And that takes quite a lot to attack a refugee center that's one of your own German buildings, but they are burning them down. And attacks on refugee centers has increased from 2021 to 2022 by 71%. So that was the first time they increased again since 2015. So the crisis is being revived and Europe is noticing it. And we can see, as you said, with the earthquakes that those tensions will rise further. Just in 2022, Germany just reported that there were 218,000 asylum seekers, and that was the reaching a similar level than 2016. And that's in addition to 1 million Ukrainian refugees. So you really see that they are reaching their limit. Yes. Yeah, so with all these attacks on these uh, refugee centers, we see that there is clearly some major dissatisfaction among, you know, some of the Germans with the way their government is allowing so many refugees in and particularly so many Middle Eastern refugees in. Can you explain how this dissatisfaction is prophetically significant? Yes, we actually just had an article in our latest trumpet, the impact of Turkey's earthquake by Mr. Joel Hilika and Mahalo Zekic. And that really goes into those prophecies in that recent context. Specifically, Psalm 83 talks about an alliance of various moderate Arab countries in the Middle East. For example, Syria and Turkey are part of that alliance. But this alliance also mentions a European nation, and that's Germany. Germany, the leading power of Europe, will be allied with these Middle Eastern countries. And this refugee crisis and other crises are leading to the fact that Germany is more and more interested in solving the crisis not in their own country because they can't anymore, but actually intervening in Syria. And the earthquakes actually have caused to see Assad and Erdogan more positively saying they need our help, let's overlook that they are actually suppressing their people. So that's a trend to watch here. Josue has written up a shorter article about the increase in attacks on refugee shelters in Germany. It's called Attacks on Refugee Shelters in Germany Rise Drastically, um, which you can find in our show notes for today's program. And we will also leave a link there to that in-depth article by Mr. Joel Hilliker and Mihailo Zekic, which goes into a lot more detail about the prophetic significance of these trends. Well, thanks very much for that, Josue. We'll turn our attention now to a new report from the U.S. Department of Energy saying that it turns out COVID very well may have emerged from a lab in Wuhan after all. So to tell us about this, we'll turn it back over to Andrew Miller. Yeah, this uh, report shouldn't be too shocking to anyone who's been <laughs> listening to this program for uh, any length of time. I think uh, both us and most of conservative America has known that COVID emerged from a lab in Wuhan for about three years now. Uh, the FBI finally admitted that uh, about a year ago. And now the U.S. Department of Energy is coming around as well. This week, the Department of Energy concluded that COVID-19 emerged from a laboratory leak in Wuhan, China, and the agency is now being investigated by a congressional committee. That congressional committee is also investigating the FBI and the U.S. Department of State and has already... Uh, published findings as well that Congress now believes that COVID emerged from a lab in Wuhan, China. Uh, there are still government agencies are denying it, but just the burden of uh, evidence, the amount of evidence that that is where the virus came from is becoming overwhelming. And I, I think the U.S. government's going to have to pivot uh, very soon is probably pivoting already from um, denying that the virus came to from a lab in Wuhan to trying to blame the Chinese Communist Party for everything. And uh, I'm uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party definitely does uh, have its share of blame in this. But it was the uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci's department at the uh, uh, U.S. National Institute for Health that was funding this research, and I have in front of me a journal article from Nature Medicine published 2015 between uh, Dr. Ralph Barrick at the University of North Carolina 
and scientist at the Wuhan Institute of Vir- Virology, explaining how to uh, splice the spike protein from a bat coronavirus onto a mouse coronavirus, which is how, <laughs> which is what, that's what COVID-19 is. They splice together two species of coronavirus. Uh, they did it with American funding, and they did it with American technology. Dr. Ralph Barrick from South Carolina, I'm sorry, North Carolina, is the, the one who taught the, uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology how to do that. That's the main reason the U.S. government is trying to cover this up is that as, uh, as evil as the Communist Party of China is, uh, the proof is emerging that the Obama administration probably bears even more blame than Xi Jinping does for this, uh, for this pandemic. The, uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology would have never figured out how to splice together two separate species if American researchers would not have taught them how to do this. Yeah, so this is, uh, you know, for, for many people, this is not at all surprising. But I think in some ways it is surprising to see a branch of the U.S. government, especially under the Democratic Biden administration finally acknowledging the possibility of a lab leak after years of that being an entirely taboo acknowledgement. And it's not just the Department of Energy, as you said, but also elements of the FBI and um, other other elements of the government as well on both the Republican and the Democrat side. So it's remarkable, I think, to see this fairly sudden across the aisle departure from the not so distant past when many of these same people said to even suggest blaming China was racist and it was xenophobic to blame China. Um, This week, the Biden administration also labeled China's TikTok as a potential national security risk. You know, so it seems to me like a big shift is happening pretty suddenly in America's handling of China. Both parties used to really traipse around very gingerly, just making sure not to offend the Chinese, trying to engage them as a partner on all fronts. But now everyone in D.C., Republicans and Democrats alike, and mainstream media as well, seem to be turning on China. Um, what do you make of that big shift? Why now? I think it does just really highlight what <laughs> what a few courageous people can do for their country. Because uh, at the beginning, it was just a couple Make America Great Again Republicans who were willing to risk their reputation as crazy conspiracy theorists to start exposing some of this. Well, the, the government's plan A was to just deny it ever happened. Uh, now, like I said, I've got the journal articles in front of me. There's been so much evidence released that if the government continues to deny it, everyone in America is going to realize they're a bunch of liars. Uh, and so I, I think they're really kind of on the back foot. I don't necessarily think they're, um, at least the Democrats are sincerely turning against China quite yet. Uh, but they do realize that, like, in order to keep public support, <laughs> uh, they are going to have to admit that some of this stuff is true. And I think they're, uh, Dr. Fauci is still trying to deny America's role uh, in engineering this virus. And that's the article we put in the show notes as Appendix C from America Under Attack, Was the Coronavirus Engineered? Which really takes us from the prophetic element of uh, Second King's uh, 14 verses 26 through 28 about America suffering a bitter affliction and, uh, and probably the bitterest part of that affliction so far, uh, or one of the bitterest parts of that affliction has been the coronavirus lockdowns, which, um, uh, which is a curse on America that was deliberately designed by the Obama administration and the communist party of China. They tried to deny it. They got caught. Uh, the Obama administration's and, or its uh, or his uh, avatar and the Biden administration's uh, trying to do some serious backpedaling, trying to throw China under the bus and say this was all China's fault. When really they were uh, they were in this uh, together, and um, they're I, I don't think they're I don't think they're happy. I don't think they're happy that they have to admit that it came from a lab, and that's why there's still elements of the U.S. government that are denying it. But uh, there's at least some people in the FBI and the uh, the uh, Department of Energy who realize that well, we're going to have to shift the narrative if we're going to maintain any shred of credibility amongst the American people. 
Andrew has written an article that ties all of this together with the uh, various prophecies that he just mentioned there. It's called A Weapon to Transform America. So please check out our show notes for today's program to see a link to that article. And we will also link there to Appendix C of Trump Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry's book, America Under Attack. So you can check that out there as well. Thanks very much for that, Andrew. We will take a short break now. And when we come back, we'll talk about a major weapons package the U.S. is selling to Taiwan a UK trade deal with the EU, Iran's new cruise missiles, and the breakdown of South Africa's energy grid. We'll be right back. listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Well, the Biden administration here in the United States has just announced a massive sale of weapons to Taiwan. The deal is being touted as a way to maintain the status quo and to keep the peace. But will it be enough? To tell us about this, we'll go once again to Rafaro Manyapa. Right, yeah. On Wednesday, the Pentagon made an announcement that uh, the U.S. had approved the potential sale of uh, missiles and related equipment to, uh, for, for Taiwan to use on its F-16 fighter jets. And this equipment is worth around $619 million. So that's a massive sale. Uh, and and uh, the, the United States said that it's, it's all uh, to be used to... Uh, protect uh, Taiwan and to assist the island in maintaining a, a sufficient self-defense capability. Uh, China came out swinging, saying, uh, just condemning this sale. And uh, the Chinese foreign uh, ministry spokesperson said that it's a serious violation of the one China principle, that they're firmly opposed to this sale. And, and they accused the U.S. of creating tension in the Taiwan Strait, and and they they came out and said that they're not going to stop. They're going to resolutely and forcefully defend Chinese sovereignty, which <laughs> you know it's it's, a, it's very rich from China. It's it's a very consistent line that they've come out with, you know, saying that it's it's America which is stoking these tensions when they've been destabilizing things for for ages in Taiwan. Yeah. But it's 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 frustrating again to see how uh, how forceful China is in saying what it what it says, and then the U.S. is rather meek in in talking about uh, this weapon sale. Uh, an official at the State Department said that um, this is all in line with the the Taiwan Relations Act, and it's it's just the U.S. trying to maintain. Uh, that status quo and and they they didn't come out very strongly against Taiwan at all but it it is it is worth noting that massive weapons sale and it 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 will help Taiwan in a certain way for sure yeah so you know it seems like a move in the right direction and and the Biden administration says this will help Taiwan to remain independent and free and as you said it does you know it sounds like a substantial package especially considering the other recent US arms sales that this comes on top of um but what do you think will this be enough ultimately to prevent a, a Chinese attempt at a military invasion well, to get the answer to that, you just need to look at what China's saying and what it's doing. And, and we've already covered what they said about the sale, but what they did. So this this sale was announced on Wednesday. The very same day, China had 19 uh, airspace violations uh, of, of Taiwan's airspace. Uh, the next day on Thursday, it, it, it topped that by two. It had 21 violations of Taiwanese airspace. You know, America comes out yeah. and, and, and sells uh, uh, these uh, weapons to, to Taiwan and China basically says, we don't care. We're going to keep doing what we've been doing and we're determined to seize Taiwan. And American intervention is no longer what it used to be. Like, it's not the deterrent that it used to be. And that's America's fault. All of this started in 1998 when Bill Clinton, he became the first U.S. president to publicly oppose Taiwanese independence. 
And Mr. Gerald Flurry, our, edit, our editor-in-chief, he said that this mocked the beginning of the end for Taiwan. And here's what he said in his article that he wrote, Taiwan Betrayal. He said, the Chinese leaders pressured the president and America to speak against our freedom-loving friends before the whole world, and he's the first president ever to do so publicly. The people of Taiwan fear for their future. They feel betrayed. And we not only betray the Taiwanese, we betray our own ideals of freedom. And then he goes to say that how could anyone fail to see that Taiwan is destined to become a part of mainland China? These people are going to be forced into the Chinese mold and it is going to happen for one reason, because of a pitifully weak-willed America. And that's what we see in this entire in this entire thing. And it's been happening for years. You know, America comes out and it it, it, it sells weapons to Taiwan, but it, its rhetoric, its posture just spells weakness. It says that they're trying to maintain uh, this balance, but China's been very consistent in saying that it's going to fight and defend what it what it calls its sovereignty and it's not backing down from America even though America is trying to support Taiwan China seems more determined than ever and it's showing the actions to back up that particular sentiment that article once again is called Taiwan Betrayal by Mr. Gerald Flurry. It was written about 25 years ago now, but in light of current events, it's clear that this article remains soberingly relevant. So please check that out. And there's also a section in our booklet, Russia and China in Prophecy, that's all about the China-Taiwan dynamic and how America factors into that dynamic. And uh, it, it tells us what we should ultimately expect to happen there. So we'll leave a link to that as well. Thanks very much for that, Mr. Manyepa. We'll turn our attention now to the United Kingdom, which has just struck a major deal with the EU over trade rules in Northern Ireland. To tell us about this, we'll turn it back over to Andrew. Yes, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak just uh, inked uh, a landmark agreement with the European Union that solves a very serious problem in Northern Ireland by kicking the can down the road. Uh, now, to uh, <laughs> I guess, especially for our American audience who are not as familiar with the inner workings of Irish politics, I'll just give a, a quick summary uh, about 102 years ago, Britain and Ireland were one country, one kingdom called the, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. Um, Ireland wanted independence, so they, they became an independent republic in 1921, uh, but not the entire island, the, the northern 20% of the island where, where most of the Protestants live, uh, remained part of the United Kingdom. So that divided the island of Ireland into two nations, one an independent republic, one part of the United Kingdom. Uh, there are a lot of hard feelings over that. It started a devastating guerrilla war, some would even say a civil war, that killed about 30,000 people over the next several decades. Uh, until in 1998, they called what was called the Good Friday Agreement that basically said if the Irish accept Northern Ireland as part of the United Kingdom, uh, the United Kingdom would make an open border between Northern Ireland and the rest of Ireland. So trade goods could flow freely across it as well as people. Um, that agreement worked pretty well as long as both nations were part of the European Union. But when Britain left the European Union, there was worries that Northern Ireland could kind of become a backdoor for European Union goods into Ireland. So they put in border checks uh, between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom. Uh, that made uh, <laughs> that made quite a few of the Northern Irish who wanted to remain part of the United Kingdom upset uh, because they said they, they should be willing to trade freely with the kingdom they're a part of. Uh, and so they basically, this, uh, <laughs> this week, uh, Rishi Sunak inked uh, a deal with European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen uh, saying that they're going to remove most of those border checks so that Northern Ireland can trade freely with the rest of Ireland under the Good Friday Agreement and can still trade freely with the uh, United Kingdom under this new agreement 
which basically does what the Brexiteers feared and makes Northern Ireland a backdoor for EU goods into the United Kingdom. Ireland can trade with the EU because it's part of the EU. Uh, Ireland can trade with Northern Ireland because under the good terms of the Good Friday Agreement, and Northern Ireland can trade with the rest of the nation uh, under... Uh, under this new under because it's part of the United Kingdom. Yeah. So really, we see with this that there is, you know, ongoing strife between Ireland and England. And uh, and it really looks like this could give Ireland an opportunity to help the European Union undermine the UK. Um, could you talk a little bit about how we should see that? in light of Bible prophecy. Yeah, it could be because, I mean, at this point, in the short term, it might not be a bad deal because by by allowing Northern Ireland to trade with the rest of the Ireland, it stops guerrilla warfare from breaking out. Right. And by allowing Northern Ireland to trade with the European Union, uh, it prevents uh, Northern Ireland from being integrated into a united Ireland more quickly. Uh, yeah. But it does also highlight that there, that Ireland, which is part of the EU, <laughs> still has quite a bit of hard feelings uh, against Britain, which um, highlights some pretty sobering prophecies. If you've read uh, Her- the late Herbert W. Armstrong's book, The United States and Britain and Prophecy, you know that um, Ireland is descended from the ancient Israelite tribe of Dan, while England is descended from the ancient Israelite tribe of Joseph. Uh, and even anciently, there was always quite a bit of tension between uh, Dan and Joseph. Uh, in a 1996 article in the Philadelphia Trumpet, the late Ron Fraser even highlighted uh, a prophecy in Jeremiah 8, verses 15 through 17, about a time when the uh, end-time Holy Roman Empire conquers Britain. And uh, this prophecy says, We looked for peace, but no good came. For a time of health and behold trouble, the snorting of horses was heard from Dan. The whole land trembled at the sound of the neighing of the strong ones. For they come and they devoured the land and all that's in it, the city and those that dwell therein. For behold, I will send serpents, cockatrices among you, which will not be charmed and they will bite you, says the Lord. So this is a prophecy about uh, an army uh, and in prophetic language the army rides horses uh, and you can hear the horses snorting from dan uh before they invade ephraim and manasseh that's how the assyrians invaded israel anciently this the danites the city of dan was at the very top of israel and the syria was north of israel so they when tiglath pileser came he conquered dan the city of dan first and then moved <laughs> into the rest of the the nation now that happened about a century over century before jeremiah wrote this so that's not what he's talking about that was ancient history at that point um uh, it's an end time prophecy that uh at least uh, uh at least indicates uh i don't think our 1996 article took a too dramatic point but at least indicates that history could repeat itself in that way with the european union uh using uh ireland which it already controls uh and is the modern descendants of Dan kind of as its staging point to conquer the rest of the United Kingdom. And so when you're looking at these trade deals, it's definitely good to keep those, uh, uh, those prophecies in mind that you here you've got an Israelite tribe that has some antagonism against, uh, against Ephraim and is already integrated into the EU trade and government structures. And, um, uh, that could uh, that could be uh, lead uh, open the door for a very uh, serious betrayal in the in the near future. Andrew has written an article all about these latest developments and what they mean in the big picture context. It's called UK Strikes a Deal with EU over Post-Brexit Trade Rules in Northern Ireland. We'll leave a link to that in our show notes, and we'll also leave a link to The United States and Britain in Prophecy, that book by the late Herbert W. Armstrong. You can order your free copy of that just to take a deep dive into the prophecies that Andrew just mentioned there, as well as many other prophecies. Thanks very much for that, Andrew. For the next story, we'll take a look at the Islamic Republic of Iran, which is making major advancements in its nuclear program, and now the nation is also improving its ability to deliver nuclear warheads with some impressive new missiles. To tell us about this, we'll go back to Josue Michels. On February 24th, Iran announced that it developed a long cruise missile 
that's according to Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. The missile could strike major cities in places like Israel, Saudi Arabia and Turkey. And we have an article on this by Mihailo Sekic. And right around the same time, Iran, it has now been confirmed that Iran has 84% uranium. And you really don't need any such uranium if you don't plan to develop nuclear weapons. So there's no doubt now that Iran not only plans to develop nuclear weapons, but they have very concrete plans of using those nuclear weapons. It's not like they want to deter other enemies. They have a very strict policy. They have a radical religion that really wants to start wars. So it's not about deterrence here. They really want to provoke wars. And that's what we are seeing here. And it also appears more and more that Europe and other nations are waking up to that reality. They should have woken up to that reality a long time ago. But within the last year especially, we have seen Germany take a much more confrontive course on Iran. I believe on the show we talked last time about Iran and Russia not being invited to the Munich Security Conference. And that's a clear show that there are growing tensions and they actually invited the protesters in. So in the last year, there were also quite a few protests against the Iranian government and they are about wanting more freedom and liberty. And that really woke up not only the conservative part of Europe, but also the liberal part. They're saying now that Iran is suppressing their own people and that kind of gives them more incentive to be bolder about confronting Iran. And these latest news are heightening the tensions even more. Could you talk a little bit about why this is significant in the context of Bible prophecy? Yeah. For a long time, we haven't seen Germany really taking a stronger approach against Iran. Uh, But we have pointed for many years to prophecy in Daniel 11, verse 40, that they will. And those recent news are really highlighting that that prophecy is confirmed, not only that Iran is provoking Europe, but also that Germany is interested in taking a stronger approach to that. And we have an article about that in our trends section, why the trumpet watches Iran and Europe heading for a clash of civilization. The article that Josue mentioned there by Mihailo Zekic is called Iran Announces New Long-Range Cruise Missiles. That explains a lot of the details of the, the news from this week. And then we will also link to the other article he just mentioned there called Why the Trumpet Watches Iran and Europe Heading for a Clash of Civilizations. That one really explains the prophetic relevance of these various Iranian advancements. Well, thanks very much for that, Josue. For our final story of the show today, we'll look at the increasingly severe blackouts happening in South Africa and what they could mean for the nation's future. For this, we'll go back to Andrew Miller. Yeah, the blackouts in South Africa are getting worse and worse. This has been a problem the nation struggled with for 15 years uh, initially, uh, initially, the power company, uh, like most power companies, only provided power to people who paid for it. Uh, the South African government determined uh, that there were that was racist because there were a number of very poor people there uh, who weren't white who needed power, and so they they implemented a policy where you had to give that power to them for almost no cost, uh, which means they. Power companies can't actually generate enough power for the whole country if they're giving it away for free. And so in order to make it fair, instead of only giving a part of the country power, they give much of the country power, but they have to turn off the power for hours at a time. Uh, till recently, <laughs> th- th- those uh, those power outages only lasted about six hours. Uh, now they're lasting up to 14 Uh, So the South African president has declared a state of emergency, and the American embassy is advising South Africans to stock up at at least three days of food in case the power grid collapses completely and the nation descends into rioting or even civil war-like conditions. The state of emergency was actually declared almost a month ago, but this week uh, a volunteer with the group Afroforum posted a Twitter thread that went viral 
that has some pretty shocking information. Uh, I'm this is a <laughs> this is a 15 tweet thread. Uh, oh, excuse, sorry, a 20 tweet thread. So I won't read all of them, but uh, but a couple of them are just really shocking stuff. He says South Africa has collapsed. The U.S. embassy is now informing international travelers to stock up on food and water. Uh, city power has an average turnaround time of two to three days for grid repairs. They don't have the manpower, supplies, or funds, and we're already using this year's budget. We're seeing an increase in coordinated attacks on water, power, and communications infrastructure. Looting is no longer just a daily thing. It's now becoming a structured part with guerrilla planning involved. Our roads no longer exist. Anything that is state-run is crumbling. Police, fire, and hospital resources for the state don't exist, and they're also slowly disintegrating. ESCOM, South Africa's power producer, is averaging 50% or less power input. Uh, and then skipping ahead a little, it says, Our murder rate is higher than the death rate in Ukraine's current conflict, higher than in active war zones, hundreds of rapes every day, thousands of kidnappings every month, 90 car hijackings a day, farmers being murdered like flies in the most brutal ways imaginable. And so you're, um, South Africa is one of those nations that it's, uh, it doesn't feature in American news much, so it's easy to forget about. But like you said, it's like the, the failed state there is getting to the point that like on a whole, like you said, the murder rate in South Africa is worse than the, uh, the death rate in uh, Ukraine these days, which is pretty high. Uh, and, um, Definitely, we have an article we can put in the show notes uh, titled South Africa's Blackouts Threaten Civil War. Uh, it's pretty short, but it highlights um, some comments our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry, made all the way back in 1994 when Nelson Mandela first came to power, where he said that South Africa is the first of the Anglo-Saxon nations to have given away its God-given birthright. And uh, South Africa, as uh, being settled by... Uh, by Dutch and British settlers 400 years ago. Uh, it is part uh, of the nations of Israel, and it is the first of those nations to have surrendered the uh, Judeo-Christian principles <laughs> that they used to run a, a nation on uh, and embraced uh, Marxist politics that are leading to the blackouts today. And we've, uh, we've long said <laughs> in the news bureau here that South Africa, it's almost like a canary in the coal mine. Uh, when you see the type of problems um, South Africa is experiencing, you see the type of problems the other Israelite nations like Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Britain, and America will be experiencing very soon. Yeah, really sobering to hear about just the uh, the the very severe problems that they're experiencing there, and to know that, as you said, that's uh, kind of an indication of what's on the horizon for other nations as well. We really appreciate you bringing us up to speed on that, Andrew. We are now coming to the end of Trumpet Hour. Please send any comments you may have about today's episode to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks very much to our smaller panel today, Andrew Miller, Rafaro Manyepa, and Josue Michels. Thanks also very much to Parker Campbell and Jesse Hester for seeing to the audio work. And we'll leave you today with these words from Thomas Sowell. Have we reached the ultimate stage of absurdity, where some people are held responsible for things that happened before they were born, while other people are not held responsible for what they themselves are doing? Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. <laughs>